following is an R.E.D. Podcast Network production, bringing on-demand geek audio straight to your eardrums one podcast at a time. To listen to more great geek audio podcasts, check out the R.E.D. Podcast Network at redpodcastnetwork.com, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. Gentlemen, clowns, penguins, villains, and would-be heroes of Gotham, welcome to the Gotham City Podcast. My name is Ian, I'm your host, and yes, that accent is an Irish one. Each Tuesday on this podcast, we review the week's episode of Gotham, talk about the characters we meet, where they come from, their part in this new imagining of the world of Batman, and any other news relating to the show as the season progresses. Last night, folks, the world premiere of Gotham took place, and the internet is alight with the world of Bruce Wayne and Batman, albeit in a very, very early form. And you know what? The feedback so far has been great. There's been some wonderful discussions I've seen starting to take place with people who are completely new to the world of Batman who actually watched Gotham. And yes, that is hard to believe. There are people who are completely new to the world of Batman um, who maybe didn't engage the movies, who maybe didn't engage the animated, certainly didn't engage with comics, didn't engage... Uh, with the old TV series Adam West and Burt Ward, and uh, and like people like Chaser Romero and Lee Merriweather and and those kind of like great great actors that have uh, that we have like come to acknowledge and recognise for their role in like Batman on television, and it, it it's a wonderful thing to see. I love when I see new people engaging with the world of Batman. And the reason being is because Batman is, I think, for me, as someone who's grown up with the world of Bruce Wayne and in and the DC universe and everything else as it's now come to be encompassed, I'm still utterly amazed by how when people actually gravitate to Batman, how quick they actually want to go down the rabbit hole and find out more. And because Batman is a very, very human story, it it's not difficult to imagine someone who has to find their way in a world where they are now having to redefine their own markers where everything they thought about the world has been turned upside down there's you can take out the sort of the superhero side of things and the aliens like superman and uh, and the gods like uh wonder woman and Aqu- namor the aquaman and and all the rest of this stuff you um you can you can take it all out of it but and and just be left with a very, very human story of someone who actually deals with loss in a very, very different way and tragedy in a very, very different way that leads them on a very, very different path in their life and then the one they had previously imagined would be laid out for them. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the episode opens up, and I have to say, watching the first episode up front, you, have to, you can't help but acknowledge the, the art direction in the movie. And the cinematography as well, and the CG where they've actually overlaid on New York City for Gotham. It looks amazing. It looks incredible. It, there's nothing there that really distracts. It looks it looks at a place. Um, there are some people I've seen make comments on the, how the datedness of it in some respects, and you know what? I don't really have a problem with that because I don't think there is an actual uh, time frame that's sort of being definitively laid out here in terms of being able to say, "Oh, that's the 1980s." But when I'm looking at it, it kind of has that 1980s-ish feel with some parts of, uh, of modern uh, society, technology, and the rest of it sort of being put into play there. And again. 
this plays into that beautiful thing I used to enjoy with the animated series, which was you seen the sort of very old style 1950s and 1960s style vehicles and you had police blimps and zeppelins over the city. Um, but you had nods that were two things which were incredibly modern as well. Uh, and I think that that kind of, it's, it's a wonderful sort of melange of styles that actually go together and creates this very, very unique world that makes it very easy to fall into and just start to follow a narrative without being sort of caught up in the details of uh, a date and time specific environment or world. And again, that's just a tribute to the people who actually understand the setting of the world and how it needs to be presented. And this episode, you know, it is very much uh, setting the foundation about who is who in the world and setting some ground truths for you. For people who aren't familiar with that term, ground truth is basically where, uh, it's a Google term, and I I like using it, but I hate using it at the same time, Uh, and it's basically establishing some foundations of things that you can actually go and say, okay, right now, these are the, are where you can do a, you can sort of touch a stone and be, and find where you're home, and then you can find your way from there outwards. So, you get introduced to all the characters, it's very much like an introduction heavy um, episode, which I, I guess is kind of to be expected when you're talking about the launch of this. I mean, if you're trying to bring people into the world of Batman, you can't just launch into the story and expect people to be able to just jump into it straight away. Similarly, you've got so many people around the world who are actually fans of the Batman universe, you can't actually... Uh, drag them down with like massive amounts of explanations for non-Batman fans. And there is a fine line that has to be walked with it. It's, it's a quite a difficult one, but I don't believe it's one which is entirely impossible. And I think on the balance, this episode does that quite well. So let's talk about the characters you're introduced to. You're introduced in the start, the outstart to, or the outset to, Selina Kyle, who is, it seems, and again, it's not confirmed to you, but again, this is sort of the suggestion that she is a street orphan who engages in petty thefts to find her way and to keep making her way in her life through the city of Gotham. And I have to say, I'm actually really not a fan of the hood already being in place with the goggles on top. Like, I understand why they did it, because you're going to have the Batman fanboys, and especially the ones who are very big on the video game with the the image of the goggles and the rest of it, to be like, oh, that's amazing, it's a really cool thing. I'm not gone on that right now. I prefer that was something that she came to and came to acquire later on. And that's just my personal taste and personal preference but it doesn't take away from the story of her we haven't heard her talk so far in this episode it's just been very very small uh, things to introduce her she's obviously likes to get around and she knows her way around she's very agile uh, and you can see the the link and the reference to cats very early on in this episode one thing i should probably do for these shows is to tell people hey unless you've actually watched the episode it's going to be full of bloody spoilers um which will make it easier uh, for me then having to go spoiler alert because I hate, really hate that when it's on podcasts myself and I'm pretty sure a lot of other people do as well. So you're introduced to the fact that she is uh, Selena Kyle. You're not actually told her name but we know this from people who watch it. So again this comes into this thing of where you know something that the characters don't do in the narrative and sometimes that's annoying, sometimes it isn't. But you're introduced to her that this is a character which is floating around. She doesn't need to have a name officially in it. Um, and you can see towards the end of the episode, again, she turns up at just like hovering over, uh, looking over the wall of Wayne Manor. 
And again, here's the thing with this. You, as soon as you get past this sort of very brief introduction to this particular character, you can't help but notice your introduction to Gotham in terms of the scenery as well. And it looks like an amazing cross between the Gotham of the comic books for the last couple of years and the Nolan verse, which was very much sort of, um, you know, take Gotham away from the Tim Burton-esque type view, which was a very dark, gothic, romantic, uh, or neoclassical, uh, sort of dark city that felt like it was on a soundstage, and in fact it was on a soundstage very often, into this sort of very big, sprawling uh, city metropolis, without actually being Metropolis from Superman. And to actually give it some depth, and to make it feel like it's a world that's living and breathing, and it's not sort of just dead between the eyes uh, reality, which um, Chris Nolan's Batman movies managed to sort of portray. We then come across to the introduction of the central part of the story, why Gotham exists, and why Batman exists, and all the rest of that good stuff, which is the introduction to the Waynes, and this is done through that um, now infamous scene, and you know, it's pretty much almost mandatory for any Batman story, um, which is the murder of the of uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne, um, and Bruce on looking for the entire thing. Now, I, I, I like the way this was actually done and put together. There are a couple of bits and pieces that, for me, um, took away from the gravity of the moment. And, and let me just explain this for one moment. In the Chris Nolan movies, when you actually sort of fall back to that scene where um, Thomas and Martha are murdered in front of Bruce, there's a point in that scene from the Chris Nolan trilogy um, where when the Waynes are actually on the ground and Thomas is still alive and, and he is dying, he takes Bruce's hand and he tells him that it's going to be okay, that it's going to be okay, there's no need to be scared. And I actually really like that scene because I find it incredibly touching because it, it it's, again, if you think about what's actually happening, it's completely horrific. We're so numbed to violence as people and as a society these days that something like this, which actually... It really is extremely shocking. Like a, a mother and father murdered in front of their child in cold blood, um, and 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 the child having to sit there while their while their parent is dying, and not the fact that one of them is dead, but the other one is actually physically dying in front of their eyes. What that is, and if you th- if you want to think about the gravity of that situation, if you're a parent and you're sitting there with your child, like. You're not focusing on your own death at that point. You're focusing on trying to give some sort of calm and solace to your child. So, like, not make them feel as bad and and, and to try and let them know, like, it's going to be okay. Even though it's really not. And I would have liked to have seen that incorporated into it. And again, this just comes down to my personal love of, of the Batman universe and the fact that it is a very, very human story. And I think that the what happens to... Um, the the Waynes at this point is, uh, you know, it is horrific. It's it is something which which should be shocking to us, um, but again, our, our real life is far more grim in terms of the realities of things we take about in the real world, where we're we're seeing people being captured and being beheaded, and the videos put up onto social media and the rest of it. You know, this kind of pales in comparison to that. Um, where reality is far more scary and far more shocking than real, uh, than the fantasy side of things, which is uh, a kind kind of a very very telling reverse of our societies. But not to dwell on that too much and to move on from it. But we are then introduced to uh, 
Jim Gordon and to Harvey Bullock. You know, I love the set of the police station. When I've seen the stills for this, you know, it is it is a perfect look at the Gotham police station. It has this wonderful, again, that beautiful dichotomy of the old and the new coming together. And it really shows the degradation of even the police at this point in the story. So you can understand just how far they've already come without actually coming out and going, the police have all been bought off. The entire thing has gone to hell. It's... It shows that, like, even at the point where you're introduced to Jim Gordon, where he disarms uh, the crook who's t- taken another cop's gun and he's holding them at gunpoint in the middle of, of the police station, that you can see that, you know, right there in front of all other police officers in the centre of the police station, there's other officers who, after this guy is clearly unarmed, they are waylaying into the guy and just beating him down into the ground. And nobody seems concerned that this is actually happening and it's being done quite openly. Uh, and without any sort of like back rooming or you know he tripped and fell uh he walked into the table uh and, and you know the usual kind of 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 wink and nod things for dirty cops and interrogations like, it's quite open and and you can see that the culture of the police officers is is not one of law is not really one of of justice it is one of like just pure and utter like enforcement um and mob enforcement at that too and you know, when you actually see Bullock and his his, his speech with Jim Gordon um, uh, about that, like, you know, this world that Jim has now found himself back in, part of being a part of the police force, it's very different to the way that he imagines things. And you can see that Bullock's indifference to being a police officer and even be having to deal with something like a, picking up a murder case when, uh, you know, it's nearing the end of his shift, you know, it shows you just how far, how far gone the police are at this point. Um, and this central character, how little he actually even cares for his job. Uh, it seems to be just a, a case of going through the motions for him. And so what happens is you've got Bullock and, and Gordon and they're dispatched to the murder scene for the Waynes. And this is the point at which, um, Jim Gordon and Bruce Wayne actually go and meet and in this again this comes back to when you see that the fact that the kid is there and he doesn't want to talk and he has a friendly face and someone who's not only displaying sympathy but empathy with him as well um, that he actually manages to get him to open up to him a little bit and and provides him with some hope and some reassurance that you know despite this you know the dark the the night is always darkest before the dawn type deal um it shows the humanity of it, and again, I think when we're you're talking about people who are very familiar with the Batman universe, the lore, the backstories, all the different variation takes that have been done by so many great storytellers over the years, we often forget that this was a little boy who saw his parents murdered in front of him. And again, we're so numb to things, we forget how horrific this truly is. And the way that this scene is actually being played out, um, where you've got the interaction between. Um, Bruce Wayne sitting on the on the stairs or on this sort of a, a step ladder type thing in the out in the alleyway um, uh, on the, the catwalk as it is, and Jim Gordon talking to him again. It's a very very human scene, and I think it was it was played wonderfully. And it was there is a very very real way that can be done hugely cheesy. It reminds me of the gravitas of the scene that was done in the Nolan movies. And again, I'm going to make this reference because there are an awful lot of people who've seen it, and for people who haven't seen it, it's one which, when I describe it, it'll make it easier for it. Where you had uh, the character of Jim Gordon in the police station with Bruce Wayne in the Nolan movies. Um, and he puts his jacket around Bruce Wayne to provide him with some warmth and, and because the kid is sitting there shivering with shock. 
And again, it's a very, very human scene and it takes it back to the real core of this, which is, you know, the destruction and shattering of a young child's childhood by something incredibly traumatic, which is very, very close to him, and the reshaping of the world for him as he sees it in his own mind at that point. We're also introduced to Alfred at this, and Alfred, you can already tell, is going to be the stalwart, stiff upper lip British type. Again, wonderful choice in the casting for this character as well. Uh, and he's telling the boy, you know, make sure he walks tall and not let people see him cry very very stout very very british type sentiment as well again it it kind of lets you know where this character is actually going to be by sort of setting out that stall very early with it again an awful lot of introductions we're introduced then to major crimes unit anyone who's familiar with the batman universe knows that this is a crime unit that jim gordon will eventually inherit and head up before he becomes commissioner and he were introduced to to central characters in mcu which is obviously going to be montoya and alan and one of the things that you then start getting into is the conversation and the relationship and how that's going to set the tone between the two main police characters, which of course are going to be Harvey Bullock and Jim Gordon. And where Jim is told in no uncertain terms by Harvey, after Harvey tries to get him dumped as his his partner with the, with the captain of the police force, he says to him, you know, Jim, this is not a city or a job for nice guys. And Jim is like more than capable of holding his own, and you can see that in his response, which is where he just basically refers to Bullock as a slovenly, lackadaisical cynic. And again, you can see that there's there is an equal footing where you know I'm going to give as good as I get. I'm not going to be your bitch, so to speak, um, and I'm not going to let you run me out of town just because you've lost hope and you're you've become very cynical and you're just like very laid back about things and accepting of the situation. Again, I think it's going to be a wonderful thing to see the development of that, especially for any of us who are familiar with those characters and what those characters represent and to see how they go. Uh, And for other people who are actually not familiar with this universe and these characters, I think that's going to be a wonderful thing for people to get to see the development of because it's something that in the comics we've taken for granted. And we take for the way it's presented to us in comics is we see a scene and we'll see we'll it'll move to another scene and it'll be up for us to and what we can infer from the dialogue in those scenes and the action in those scenes because it's almost like a snapshot of a of a moment in time and the dialogue is there represented so we get to see the evolution for us is not as it's not as fluid as it would be like on film in a tv show or in a movie so again i think that's going to be a really really nice thing to do and then we get into this scene in the in the premiere episode where they're showing the roundup of muggers that it's being undertaken by bullock and by gordon and it's real reminiscent of nypd blue in one respect they're kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek especially when you see the lampshade swinging in the interrogation room uh, again i just thought it was it was kind of nice and just a tiny bit of humor that wasn't it was very very subtle it wasn't overt and it didn't take away out of the situation again this is meant to be a drama it's not meant to be a tongue-in-cheek sci-fi or it's not meant to be a tongue-in-cheek um sort of like comic book style effort it's meant to be drama it's meant to be and nypd blue had these kind of scenes as well which is no bad thing we're introduced then to the villains and some of the future villains in the batman universe the first one we're introduced to is uh, Edward Nigma, and you know what? I hate this character already, and I hate the portrayal already. And even for that brief moment of time, but we're in there. You know what? I thought it was just too much, too soon for someone who's already familiar with this character. And there are other people who would say, if they're not familiar with this character, looking and going, "Why is this dude just asking riddles?" Uh, um, and again, it, it's 
there, there was a, I think there was a better, more subtle way of introducing him rather than just basically coming out and just having to do talk and riddles and rhyme. I mean, it's a bit like having the Cheshire Cat turn up, um, which is like completely obtuse. And anytime you watch Alice in Wonderland as an animated movie or you watch the Johnny Depp one, when you see the, the Cheshire Cat come up, you know what? It's it's a bit like a, um, it's a really like a drug moment if, if anything. Like it's it's so absolutely surreal. And I just wish they dialed that back just a tiny bit to just let us know he's Edward Nigma. Don't show his weirdness as much up front and let us discover that weirdness in time. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that because the Riddler is quite an intense character. Whatever about the Joker being hugely intense, whatever about Penguin being intense in, in his way of doing things, I think there is a place for something a little bit more subtle. Um, especially when it comes to him. Again, if you think about the last time that character appeared um, in a movie or in a a live-action scenario, you're talking about Jim Carrey's performance, and Jim Carrey's performance, whatever about turning the dial up to 11, I mean, that was up to 15 for that performance. And I think for a lot of people, it's going to take a long way for that character to uh, be gravitated towards and to be accepted just because I think just the, the the size and the sheer ferocity of what Jim Carrey brought to that role in, in Batman Forever, um, it's going to take a lot for people to accept a Riddler character without sort of having that incarnation in their head as many years ago as that is. And we were talking about 1995 at this point, so we're talking about 20 years ago, and it's still an incredibly vivid character. And then you come into sort of the Jada Pinkett Smith character of Fish Mooney, who just comes across as like someone who is extremely confident and comfortable in their position in the world uh, and knowing that their star is on the rise. And there's a little bit of sliminess to that character as well, which I think is really interesting and really nice. And it's nice when you see a female villain being played with the same gusto as a Tony Soprano-esque type character. And I think that's really nice and it's it's really interesting to see and really refreshing to see. Uh, and again, just because that's the way the real world is. It isn't this this shade of, like, it's black and white that, um, you know, female villains have to be one way or the other. They have to be like, a, you know, some of the female characters you may have seen in Frank Miller's uh, Sin City, which is uh, very, very extreme. But Frank Miller in himself is, is a bit weird in how he does things. Um, Frank Miller is definitely Frank Miller. But I love how this character is portrayed. It's very, very fresh. It's very, very ballsy. uh, And it still manages to remain uh, feminine without actually crossing over into being cutesy feminine or trying to come across like a a bit like a a boot-wearing bitch on wheels. Uh, I think, again, it's that character to watch that develop is going to be really interesting. And I love when new characters like this are introduced into these universes and in these worlds because it gives people who are very familiar with the world a new uh, slant and a new pair of eyes to view the world through. For many of us who are fans of Batman, we actually got to see this many years ago with the introduction of Harley Quinn through the animated series by Bruce Timm and Paul Dini, as was done on the Warner Brothers Network. And this character, we've now come to love it, and we we think we often think of that it's been there always, when it actually hasn't. It's only been there since the 1990s when that animated series is in. And when something is not done with that character that we expect, we suddenly start jumping up with pitchforks and flaming torches. But when that character came in, it gave us a very, very different look at other characters in that universe. It gave us a very, very different look at things like the Joker, especially because this was the Joker's girlfriend. 
And again, we'd never thought of the fact that the Joker as being a person who would be having romantic relationships or having a relationship with a member of the opposite sex that wasn't just about his usual brand of death, destruction, chaos, mayhem, and being the Omega to Batman's Alpha or vice versa. Uh, and again, when you see these characters coming into play and they're actually having like a, a proper status in the world, it, again, it allows people who have been dealing with Batman for so long another view and another window into that universe, which I think is brilliant. We're also introduced to Oswald Cobblepot, uh, who we've now learned is the Penguin and who also hates being called Penguin, which is his nickname. Um, and the one thing that you instantly are introduced to, the fact is that He's a slimy sadist who also has delusions of his own grandeur. And his, well, whatever about Fish Mooney wanting to rise to the top of the Falcone crime family, you know that he has his eyes on Fish Mooney's spot and he wants the top spot. Uh, but I just don't think he's brave enough to go and take it. I think he's quite happy directing other people from the shadows to do his dirty work for him. And I think I really can't wait to see how that character develops. I've seen some people talk about uh, Robin Lord Taylor's performance for this so far, and I think it's way, way too early to actually be so judgmental about his performance. But I think it does sort of open up the dynamic of you know the sadism that is involved and the the joy that he seems to take from actually. Uh, engaging in acts of violence against other people um, as opposed to the, the usual perception that we've had of the of the penguin up to now for anyone again familiar with the universe where we have this guy who's very very camp uh, engages in a huge amount of theatrics um, umbrellas that had that fire machine guns that have um, that act as little mini personal helicopters uh, that fire gas um, that will open uh, safes or or be used in in a and like like swords and everything else. Again, taking away the theatricality of of him just to being like this is a guy who is a criminal who's on the rise. He has this nickname he absolutely hates, and he is trying to play both sides to his own advantage. And he is complete. He is unhinged in his own ways, and has his own hang-ups as well. And he has his own identity crisis going on. Again, it's going to be brilliant to watch that going. And we're then sort of understanding the underworlds that all of this takes place in. You know, the descent of Gotham into the clutches of crime and to no longer being a city where the values of democracy such as law, order and justice are being upheld. Instead, they've been replaced by the mighty dollar and the mighty dollar is being held uh, captive and prisoner by organized crime who have now sort of taken control of the dispensing of justice within the fractures of the organized crime and the amount of leeway that they actually have with the police as well and you see that in that scene where uh, you've got Go- uh, Jim Gordon and you've got Harvey Bullock going to see Fish Mooney to try and see who actually was involved in the murder of the Waynes and the fact is that Fish Mooney is quite blatant about the fact that she's beating an employee who is stolen from her out the back. And, uh, you know, again, when Bullock goes, you know, it's all right, Mooney has a little, has special leeway. It tells you what state the world is in and the apathy that there is in terms of the fact is that this woman is openly admitting to police officers she's committing a crime and is telling them, you know, if you go outside and ask if anyone wants to press charges, no one's going to press charges. So it shows you that the world at this point, pardon my French, is utterly fucked. Um, and there's something incredibly wrong. And Jim Gordon is there when he is he is full of hope. And the, 
beautiful thing about setting that up is, and I think it's important the way that they framed Gordon for this episode, and I'm glad that they did it in this way, is that there, he, he does carry a huge amount of hope inside him. And I think that's anyone who's familiar with how you tell stories in wrestling or how you tell stories in in fairy tales and you understand how they're woven together is that it's always important to have that ray of hope and to have an ability to, at some point, try and dampen the light of that hope a little bit so you get this sort of a big fight back at some point. It's where you actually you put the hero under more pressure where you just think, oh God, I don't think they can actually take any more of this pressure. I think they're actually going to crack at this point to allow them to build to a meaningful um, resolution and point at which you kind of get satisfaction from them getting the results that you hope that they're going to get all along, even though they're at the point where you see they're nearly, you think they're going to break and they don't. And again, it's a hugely important part of storytelling. And it, when it's told like this and it's presented like this, you can see that there are these little little uh, little dials that are going to be able to be twisted and turned on that character that will that will push him further. And you'll see the points where you're going, yeah, I don't think Jim is going to come out the other side of this. Even though you know, if you're a fan of Batman, you know what way the Jim Gordon story is going to go. But being able to see what shapes the man and and these sort of small little stories and how they shape him and his view to how he goes on to become the commissioner of the police of Gotham. How he heads up major crimes unit. How he understands that vigilantism is actually something he needs to accept and he needs to to have as, as a weapon in his bow against crime to help right the wrongs in this city. And that the world actually requires vigilantes because that's how screwed up the world actually is. And again, I love the way that that's being done. We're also introduced to Barbara Keane, who again will become Barbara Gordon, a huge part of the of the Batman universe, and especially around the story of Jim Gordon. And there is already being hinted that there's a secret there for Barbara Keane. What is that secret? We don't know. But again, when they tee these things up, it's pretty much telling you, hey, there is going to be a story down the line in this season which will deal with Barbara Gordon's secret. And, you know, that'll be important. We come to the point where the arrest of the murderer of the Waynes is actually... You think it's over and done with. And, you know, yay! Congratulations to Harvey and to Jim for actually managing to pull this off. To actually go and arrest swiftly and deal true justice in two of Gotham's most beloved citizens who have been murdered and bringing their killer to swift justice even if it was killing them in the pursuit of trying to arrest them and then we learn that it's possible that this was a setup it was a frame the wrong man was was brought to justice and died unnecessarily and this creates a sort of a a peril for Jim Gordon someone who places a value in what is right and what is wrong compared to Harvey Dent who's or Harvey Bullock who's Harvey Dent <laughs> we're nowhere near that point where Harvey Bullock has actually given up in the world and he just wants to make his way as peaceful as possible with as little disruption to himself and his life and his own um, methods of finding a way in this world of madness and the MCU bring it to light because of course Oswald Cobblepot has actually turned snitch on Fish Mooney, who has been going snitching to the MCU, uh, who then start to engage in this. And when Gordon discovers that he may have accidentally killed the wrong man in the pursuit of the Wayne's killer, and he's been told this um, by, M- by MCU, um, by Montoya, it, start- it sets a fire in him. Or he actually then 
takes it upon himself to go to Fish Mooney and try and have it out there and then. And you just know from the way that this has been set up and it's teed up for you there, you know, this is never going to end well. Uh, you've seen, if anyone who's familiar with like typical movies and action movies, whenever the hero actually just walks and sticks on a giant set of stones into the villain's lair and starts to try and take them on very early on, you know that the villain at that point is left with absolutely no choice but to try and take them down a peg or to try and off them. Uh, that point again creating that jeopardy point in that peril and that is of course what happens where James ends up in the meat locker um, where he's about to be uh, disemboweled dismembered and God knows what the hell else and you know you at that point understand that Bullock is walking an incredibly fine line while he understands that like his partner probably shouldn't have gone and gone to Fish Mooney directly and and challenged at this point, he's like, okay, well, if you know, if you kill my partner, he's going to be incredibly visible. If I don't come after you, it's going to look like I was complicit in that. So again, his own uh, fragility of situation becomes exposed. And it comes to the point where he actually nearly has to threaten uh, Fishman. You know, if you kill him, I'm actually going to have to come after you. I've actually got no choice. It's out of my hands at this point. And again... I think it just shows you, like, even in the world where he is completely apathetic, where you can say that he's completely bought off by um, what, the way things have to be in Gotham in terms of law enforcement, you know, there there is a little bit of, of lightness to him, and there is a little bit of hope even for him that he's not completely beyond redemption. And this sort of brings us to the point where we're thinking about the Penguin again. You know, is he a tiger in the grass? But when Mooney discovers that it actually is him, um, who has basically snitched on him on her because of some details that only he was aware of. She wants to make sure that he is dealt with properly. But even before that can happen, Falcone, we are actually introduced to the head of the crime family. The family that actually controls all organized crime in Gotham and pretty much controls, you know, the mayors, the, the judiciary, the law enforcement officers in in, in uh in Gotham, and apparently there is rules. Rules where you can't kill police officers. Uh, how very interesting. Um, I've always said, you know, there's honour amongst thieves and there's rules amongst thieves and criminals when it suits them. And again, if you're familiar with stories and if you're familiar with wrestling, one of the things that you're always taught with wrestling, and I will on occasion use these as analogies, and I think it's because it's a very clear and easy one to use, is rules are there as a matter of convenience when villains actually need them. When villains need to use a rule to their advantage, there are rules. When villains uh, know that their advantage comes from breaking the rules, they will break the rules. And again, it's what allows you to engage with that that kind of villain uh, that bit more and to buy into them. You know, when they break the rules, you, you want to kind of just stand there and go, boo! You're breaking the rules and you want to hate them uh, and you just you utterly despise them for breaking the rules. And then when you see them using the rules to their own advantage and to suit their own means, you just stand there. You you can't help but just sit there and go, you utter bastard. Uh, again, it's just that it's that kind of human reaction that you get. And again, it's important to use these when you're telling stories about villains. Because villains, I don't think, aren't as very often, the most interesting ones aren't as very black and white um, as sort of comic books or the the ideologue of what comic books are supposed to represent villains are supposed to be. But anyone who's familiar with comic books, and especially the Batman universes, you'll find that the villains, if you decide to go and look at some of the comic books, the villains are extraordinarily complex. They have an awful lot of layers to them, and it really isn't as straightforward as, he is a bad guy, he steals, robs, kills, lies, cheats, etc. 
there is a whole heap of reasons and a whole heap of other things in behind their behavior. And again, it's it's incredibly human. And it is the beautiful thing about the Batman universe. And I think this, uh, this episode, in terms of introducing people to it, introduced a very, very human Gotham. And a Gotham which is really at a point of desperation. And it is at a point of breaking. And you understand that, you know, that there is turf wars that are going on. And the, the, the rule of thumb and the rule of law is actually being dictated by the rule of organized crime, uh, which is actually sitting above um, the ideals of law, justice, order, truth, um, and, and a free democratic society. And you understand then that there is a tie that goes between the Falcone family and Jim Gordon's family, going back to his father, because Falcone actually saved uh, Jim Gordon from being dismembered in the meat rack and in the meat locker. And it, it is really interesting to see that, and to see that there are, even in this world where you see things are descending into chaos, where things are descending into crime, where just everything seems wrong, and the apathy of the police to the execution of their role as society's guardians of, of law and justice, uh, or law and order, because justice, I suppose, is the next part, which is judiciary, which is, is at the end of that chain of law and order. Um, that you then find that you've got Bullock, who is... His, his reality, he's nothing more than a mob enforcer. He is there to be a tool of organized crime uh, wearing a policeman's badge. That's all he really is. And he takes Jim Gordon out to appear at the Harbour Gotham with Penguin Oswald Cobblepot in the boot. And he is under instruction from Falcone to make sure that Cobblepot is ended. But Jim Gordon must prove that he is on the side of organised crime and that he understands the order and the pecking order and who's who in the zoo in Gotham and he must off the penguin. But he doesn't. He actually does it in a really, a really cool way where he makes it look like he's shot him but he's actually shot aside him and pushed him into the water as part of the process. So De- uh, Bullock is under the impression that the penguin is taken care of and that Jim Gordon is playing for the right side of the pitch and that is important. And he's the again penguin, you know he falls into this thing. You know he who swims away lives to fight another day, and it is again hugely important because it's going to show you that there will come a point in time where the relationship between penguin and Gordon will come to one where Gordon will either number one be incredibly uh, remorseful that he actually didn't go and off the penguin because of the escalation of what the penguin will engage in. No doubt that will happen because that is the point of these kind of scenes is to set you up for that point where the good guy has regret of why he didn't cross over, cross the line and just take care of business. But that's what makes the good guy the good guy because he has that ground truth that he is in fact good. No matter what he may feel at some point in regret of like, why didn't I kill the guy? He couldn't just kill the guy because the good guys don't do that. The truly good ones don't because they understand that the touchstone for them is that justice must always prevail. And there will come a point where even the relationship between... Um, Cobblepot and Gordon is where he may even have to, where you'll find Cobblepot may owe Gordon one to square that debt. And again, you find this with an awful lot with villains, especially ones that aren't uh, psychopaths. With sociopaths, maybe there is a good chance where you can get them where they want to square any debts they have so they can kind of make sure that they're going about things in a guilt-free manner. It's a bit like fat-free, sugar-free yogurt. Um, It's the same kind of deal for them with that. But it'll be interesting to actually see how that goes. And we finish out the episode with 
sort of with Jim Gordon turning up to Wayne Manor and I utterly love how Wayne Manor is presented it's not overly sprawling I never liked the Wayne Manor that was presented in the Chris Nolan movies for me it was always that bit too much um, the Wayne Manor that I've actually always really liked for the last couple of years and again if you've never seen it I suggest you go on to like go on to Google use the image search engine there or use Imgur um, or if you can get onto Netflix or you can get onto iTunes you can see episodes of the old Batman the animated series I always love how that version of Wayne Manor actually looks and again it's not a huge sprawling stately home like Downton Abbey type deal uh, I think it's just something which is, is looks like like a huge big house on its own grounds um, and I like that because again it, it's it builds it to more reality as opposed to this Downton Abbey type deal which is which is again fantastical and you're not trying to delve into the fantastical you're trying to keep it somewhat grounded so people can engage with it and don't feel like they're having that moment broken and again that is going to be hugely important here the problem with stories when you talk about superheroes is that unless from the outset you're actually presenting a story where there is heroes with superpowers and everything else where they those facts become part of the ground truth it's you will not pull people out of the story or out of the moment with those things because you've established them early on and people are like they're completely bought in and sold in to the entire idea that they live in this world of the fantastic where you've got a world which is very much grounded in reality you must always find a way to keep it grounded in a form of reality or not be too far out where it makes people go whoa whoa, whoa hang on a second he did what what do you mean he he tore off his clothes and he's got a red and blue suit underneath it where did that come from you must never do that, and I think that's the one. One of the problems that they had with the Nolan movies is that it came to a point where it was when you came to the idea of Bane and the League of Shadows. You know, there was a point where it it, it tipped over that line where it took people out of it. They're like, "This is ridiculous, utterly ridiculous and insane," um, and it took that. It, it it dropped it out of that world, and whatever about the other parts of it, where Bruce Wayne disappearing from the world for eight years, you know, that's an entirely different argument for an entirely different podcast about the world of Batman. And this is not that podcast. This is about Gotham, and we see at the end, you know, where the penguin appears out of the water. He uh, his true colors are actually shown. You know, this guy is just a complete and other psychopath. Um, and that's exactly who he is now. For those who are watching that episode and who are DC Universe fanboys, I wonder how many people actually noticed at the end. I think it was Jackie uh, Healy. Uh, he's the guy who played Rorschach in the Watchmen movie. Was the guy who was fishing. I'm almost certain it was him. Uh, and I thought that was actually, if it was him, that was actually a pretty neat cameo that they threw in there. Uh, if anyone knows if that was Jackie Healy directly, please let me know. I'm going to try and have a look and see if I can get that confirmed for myself. Um, I'm literally only just after completing watching the episode before I started this podcast. So everything is sort of really, really fresh in my head at this point. And from watching this episode, you know, the world of Gotham, it's it's a every shade of grey. There's mob turf wars, regular crime and organised crime, reign supreme, and trying to maintain a balance in the semblance of justice where true justice has clearly failed and fallen prisoner to dollars. It, it shows you that, you know what, the idea that Gotham was this wonderful place and then all of a sudden that the murder of, of Martha and Thomas Wayne uh, was going to set it on a path to... Uh, hell and damnation no no it was already there 
and this is just one event which is because they were two very very high profile people um it's it's not necessarily a straw that breaks the camel's back uh but it's one where it's so high profile that one man who actually does believe in the ideals of truth justice law and order and fairness and rightness in in the world uh, that he is fighting very much an uphill battle and as people we love underdog stories underdog stories are things that we naturally gravitate to because they're easy for us to identify with again a very very human trait and the idea of Jim Gordon being placed in this world where everything else just seems bought and paid for by crime and he is a man that's willing to stand alone and stick to his principles uh, or try as hard as possible to stick to his principles Again, we, we, we root for him and we're going to continue to root for him. And the entire success, I think, of this story for him and like having the other stories weave around him because it is very much going to be about his journey to becoming the commissioner and what goes on in terms of uh, the degradation of Gotham to complete and utter despair where their vigilante is actually needed uh, like 10 years later, or 10, 15 years later is probably what you're looking at for this is that you want him to succeed and you're going to back him. And the stories have got to be about his, not just his rise and rise against all odds, he has got to have failures. And for that story to be believable and and for people to want to see that character redeem himself, he has to be pushed to the point of world breaking and he has to be sent there several times over. And that's being hinted at by Harvey Bullock where he's like, you know, if you don't do this, Jim, if you don't actually kill the penguin, like Falcone has asked and told me to tell you that you have to do, there may be ramifications and you might not even be able to save Barbara or a whole heap of other people in the city. Again, you can see the screws being turned, and again, that's going to be hugely important. You will see redemption stories, and you'll see points of hope for um, for people like Harvey Bullock. You will see that. For Fish Mooney, what you're going to see is the greed. And people who are in that position, they are, they are a classic example of the seven deadly sins. Greed. Um, you know, what people will do when greed has done nothing but take over their lives and consume them. And again, great story writing will never really deviate from the seven deadly sins. They are the perfect methods and means to go and convey a story and to convey multiple stories in one go. And in these worlds of where there's crime, criminality, and there's vigilanteism, and there's the there's no such thing as completely right and completely wrong. There's only like all the shades of grey that are in between, and the trade-off of you know what you're willing to do in order to bring justice. Uh, what parts of yourself and what parts of uh, the world in decency are you willing to surrender to achieve justice? Again, it's going to be wonderful to watch, wonderfully compelling, and I'm really, really happy that first episode was done in the way that it was. I have a couple of gripes, so do an awful lot of other people, but you know what? You can't please everyone all the time, and I'm just so glad it didn't repeat the mistakes that happened with Arrow's first episode um, which again I love the episode I think it was far better than say Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. first episode which I thought was uh, again they set you up with all this basically uh, fanboy high fiveism, and then took you on a journey of disappointment I think there's so a lot of promise here they've teed up an awful lot of nice stories they've teed up some very very obvious um, storylines and paths for characters we've already got secrets and intrigue that are there we've some more backstory we'll we'll get to see we'll get to see some more forward story we'll get to see more from characters like edward nigma um from people like uh poison ivy uh but again she's not really called poison ivy in this she's ivy pepper 
uh, with, and then you're going to see Barbara Keane's story Fish Mooney's rise you know will she overtake the Falcone Crichton family will she get to lead that family uh, how will that play out you know the Penguin how will he feed back into things um, you've already seen Bruce starting to um, address his own problems in his life as a result of the murder of his parents where he's like I want to go and conquer fear and then Jim telling him you know there's, there's no need to conquer fear fear is good because fear lets you know where the boundaries are for everything again hugely important and salient thing for the idea of a Batman and the idea of what Batman's world is and how he needs to fit into the world um, is to always know where the boundaries is because Batman doesn't kill people Batman doesn't cross the line no matter how much he wants to dispense justice and how much he hates um, crime you know he does he is um, immovable on that he will not kill people Batman doesn't use a gun and fire bullets um, Batman doesn't mortally wound people Again, these are some absolute truths almost in the Batman universe. So again, hugely important that you see that early on, especially if you're not familiar with it. It allows you to have a grounding as to why a speech like that needs to be made by Jim Gordon and what the importance of it is in the long run. Because for people, again, who aren't familiar with this universe and who are only coming into it, there are parts of this which are for people like myself who are old heads around this wheel spot and go, okay, we understand why that's important in the Batman universe and in the creation of what the Batman actually is to where Bruce Wayne takes the conscious decision to become a vigilante and fight crime and justice in Gotham City and to right the wrongs of Gotham City and right wrongs that are in his own life from his own psyche. And these sort of little speeches you see are all sort of these small little building blocks that go on to become part of that. Hugely, hugely important. Bat fans, Gothamites, I want to say thank you for lending me your ears for this episode of the Gotham City Podcast. And for anyone who actually watched the show last night, I hope you really enjoyed it because I actually really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to next week. The show, of course, will be back next week with another light to shine into the darkness of Gotham, which you can check out on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Gotham City Pod. Also using the hashtag hope number four Gotham, and you can check out the site GothamCityPodcast.com for all the latest news on the TV show and the podcast. So until next week, Bat fans, let there be hope for Gotham. Was the sound of laughter now resides a cold air where there once sang a thousand voices lies a graveyard of broken hearts. And prayers take a good look. This is who.